Well, if you have your Bible with you today, and I hope you do, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to be in verses 7 to 16 today. Hebrews 13, verses 7 to 16. Let me pray one more time, and then we'll dive into our text. Father God, all of our hope, all of our strength, all of our life is in you. There's no hope really without you. There's no strength for righteousness and faithfulness without you. There's no real, deep, eternal, soul-satisfying joy in our lives without you. And Lord, we're here to confess that. Lord, as we turn our minds and our hearts to your word, we confess this is how you primarily speak to us. But we know that we need the Holy Spirit to come and meet your word in a way for us to to really see what you have for us today. I pray, Father, that your spirit would come and that he would fill this room in such a way that he would convict us where we need conviction. Where he'd give us eyes of faith to see and to trust in areas where we are not trusting you. Where he would give us joy where we lack. Where he would just draw us up to you today as we look at your word. Spirit, just fill this room and do that work that only you can do. Lord, I also pray just to that end that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. Do a good work in these next moments together. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, last year I met an older pastor that I just really connected with. And C.S. Lewis had this idea that friendship is really forged in a moment where a couple of people say, yeah, me too. And it was kind of one of those moments. I mean, he was me in like 30 years. And if you're wondering, he looked great. It's, it's my one dad joke I get, okay? In all seriousness, he, he had just been faithful in a church for decades. He, he had been a faithful gospel witness in, in that community. He had helped lead that church through different stages of growth. However, the funny thing was, is as we got into this passage, and there's, it's this great charge of faithfulness, and what does the faithful life look like? And I immediately thought of him. It's this great example for me of what faithfulness looks like. But the strange thing was, as I was trying to develop this illustration for the sermon, I couldn't remember his name. And, and I actually couldn't even remember the name of his church. And even further, I, as I was thinking about, okay, well, how do I look it up and find it? I couldn't even remember the name of the town of the church that this guy was pastoring. He was ordinary. He was boring, probably, to most people. But that's many times what faithfulness is. Listen, some people get the headlines, even within Christianity. But, but I think God cares less about that. And he cares more about that ordinary, maybe even boring faithfulness. That's what's beautiful to him. That, that's what's beautiful about this passage. You see, what does ordinary faithfulness look like? Whatever that is, I actually think God thinks that's extraordinary. There's something extraordinary about someone just faithfully, day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, decade after decade, just being faithful. In order to understand faithfulness, he's given us this glorious passage here at the end of Hebrews 13 to lay out what extraordinary but maybe boring faithfulness looks like. That's why this passage is important. Because it just shows us ways that ordinary Christians 
can have extraordinary faithfulness. We're in the second to last message on this book of Hebrews, if you're new with us. We actually started this in September of 2019. We've started it and then stopped at different points. This has been a very deep dive into Hebrews. It's a complex book. It's a beautiful book. But at the end of the day, what Hebrews is all about is that Jesus is better. And the reason why he makes that case over and over and over again is because people were tempted to fall away believing that other things were better. And so what he does in almost this circular fashion is he just makes this case that whatever is tempting you to fall away, whatever you think is better, Jesus is actually better. Now, about chapter 10, he makes this shift from these glorious theological truths, these lofty ideas, down to the practical, down to these kind of clear admonitions and commands. And that's where Hebrews 13 sits. The, I want to give you today four commands on how to live a faithful life. These are just straightforward, they're direct, but they're built upon all this lofty and glorious theology. The, the first command is to imitate leaders who ministered the word. Imitate leaders who ministered the word. Let me read verses 7 and 8. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. This first admonition it, it, or this command it gives us in this section is how to remember how to live a faithful life. It begins by remembering your leaders. Now, most likely, what the Greek is doing here is talking about people who have already passed away. So it's saying the, these leaders have already died, but remember the faithfulness in their lives. And, and we need to be careful when we remember past leaders, right? Like, I think as Christians, it's very important for us to be careful in how we remember them. We have to be careful because Christianity is not a cult. Like, we're not supposed to deify leaders. We're not just to parrot what leaders say. We're, we're not to just hold them up on this pedestal as if they're Jesus. We already have a Jesus. And as it says in verse 8, he's the same yesterday and today and forever. Every leader that I know that has impacted my life, they're a mixture of virtue and vices. Every leader that's been in your life, everyone that has really impacted you, maybe it's a pastor, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a Bible study leader, they're like everyone else. They're a mixture of virtues and vices. We don't need to romanticize remembering past leaders. He wants us, however, to remember two things about past leaders. Number one, we're to remember those who spoke to you the word of God. So when we remember those past leaders, we're actually to remember less of them and more of the Word of God. That's what he's calling us to, is to remember those who faithfully explained and then applied God word, God's Word to your life. And that's what you're to remember, is ultimately you're to remember their teaching of God's Word. And that really gets to the heart of biblical leadership within the church. You see, that's the heart of what a pastor is to do, what an elder is to do, is they are to teach God's Word. They're to simply open up the Scriptures and explain and then apply God's Word to your life. That's what it means to disciple someone. That's what it means to counsel someone. So leadership is less about personality. It's less about an office, and it's this function of ministering God's Word. So if a leader has been faithful to explain and apply God's Word to you, you should remember that. You should imitate that. Second that he wants us to remember in verse 7 is the outcome of their way of life. So 
Many leaders can be mesmerizing on stage. They can be these lofty orators with these brilliant minds. But sometimes their character doesn't match their giftedness. And listen, that reality right there, I think that is the weakness of the American church. We've had people with just phenomenal gifts. They build these enormous platforms. And then as time goes by, we've seen that, listen, their character doesn't match their giftedness. And listen, the fault is on them on that. But I'm going to be real frank with you. The fault is on the people in the pews too who, who feed that mentality. That listen, man, he's great on stage. I hear these uncomfortable whispers about his life. But you know what? I'm, I'm getting something you know, every Sunday morning. You see, many times I think the weakness of the American church is this point that, that their life, their personal piety, doesn't match their giftedness. So he's talking about a measure of success here and thinking about past leaders. is not only their teaching, not only their explaining and applying the Word of God, but there's a personal piety about their life, the outcome of the way of their life. That's what is considered success as, as well. So if... If someone has faithfully ministered the word to you, if they've displayed personal piety, then what you are to do is you're to imitate them in your life. A, a number of years ago, um, I stumbled onto, onto Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was one of the great preachers uh, of the last century. And he started preaching, you know, at, right at the beginning of them recording sermons. So this is like right at the beginning of World War II. Some of his, uh, his sermons are kind of during the, the battle uh, for Britain, which is fascinating to me. But th- there's just thousands of sermons that this brother preached. And I've been ministered to by so many. I've listened to actually probably most of them. But I've, I've been so ministered to by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He, he, for me, has just renewed my vision for the primacy of preaching and, and what expository preaching ought to be. I've just been so challenged uh, by that. I've been so ministered to by that. It's really given me a vision of what it should look like. I've been so ministered to by what Martin Lloyd-Jones did week in, week out in that pulpit. However, and this might sound crazy to some of you, they actually made a documentary of his life. Now, for 90% of you, that sounds totally boring. I was fascinated. And here's what sucked me in. His, one of his daughters, who is who's, uh, um, uh, really, uh, she's an older lady now, but she made the comment that he was the same man at home as he was in the pulpit. And that was it. That man's personal piety matched what he was in the pulpit. That's the type of leader I want to be. That's the type of leader that I want to imitate and remember. You see, the only, we, we are to only remember and imitate the Christ-like characteristics in leaders. We're not to romanticize someone. We're not to deify someone. We're, we're not to uh, be a cult. We're to, we, we have Jesus to worship, not some human out there. Jesus is the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Leaders are going to come and go in your life. They're going to be a mixture of virtue and vices. But if they've been faithful to explain and apply God's word to you, if they have demonstrated personal piety in their life, then he calls you to imitate them. In your bulletin, I've just left some space for two things. Number one, I want you to list who you want to imitate. Just take a second here in these moments here. Write names down there. Are there people in your life that you want to imitate? And second, what do you want to imitate about them? In that second space there in your bulletin, 
What are those characteristics? What are those behaviors that you want your life to look more like? In verse 8 here, there's kind of a link to, you know, remembering and imitating these past leaders into this second command starting in verse 9. But I want you to see in verse 8 that it teaches us that Jesus is God. He's the one that is unchanging. He is steadfast in his faithfulness to his people. So Jesus is the good news. And what that means is, is, hey, imitate your leaders, but Jesus is the good news. The good leaders that you're supposed to follow and remember and imitate, they're the ones that actually point you to Jesus. Jesus is the one who is unchanging. Jesus is your source of joy. And if you've had people in your life point you to Jesus, those are the people that you're supposed to imitate. Taking your eyes off of him is how we get into trouble. So the ordinary, faithful life, it's one that imitates leaders who minister the word. The, The second command here is do not be led away by strangeness, but be strengthened by grace. Don't be led away by strangeness, but be strengthened by grace. Let me read 9 to 11. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those uh, devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So the ordinary faithful life, it's about not being led away by strangeness. Strangeness is the idea of something that is novel or odd or foreign. It's the opposite of what is tried and true and tested, what is known, what is plain, what is clear. So the nature of this strange teaching that he's referencing, it has something to do with food. Now, like a lot of uh, Hebrews, we don't always know the ins and outs of what uh, he's specifically referencing, but he's probably or or likely uh, referencing what was going on in 1 Corinthians 8. If you remember 1 Corinthians 8, they had this question of what do we do with food sacrificed to idols? So they were in this day where certain food would be sacrificed to idols, and they didn't know what to do with that food after it had been sacrificed to the idols. And he says in 1 Corinthians 8, 8, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to others. So what was going on is you had some people saying, Listen, you know, we're free to eat this meat. That, that idol that had been sacrificed to, that's not a real God. That's not something real that happened, so we should have the freedom to eat the meat. In fact, it's a mature and spiritual thing if we do. And then on the other side, you, you would have someone say, listen, there's something demonic about that whole process of sacrificing food to idols. We shouldn't touch that. We should be away from that. In fact, it's spiritual and it's mature not to eat the food sacrificed to idols. So you had this division that happened in the church as a result uh, of something that I think was an honest disagreement This legalistic division had arisen in the church. What we need in those moments is wisdom and discernment. Wisdom and discernment is what is needed in the face of strange teaching. Now listen, most of the time, there is a clear Bible verse that speaks to particular issues. Should I steal money from work? No. Why? Eighth commandment. Thou, you shall not steal. Exodus 20. And and further, the things that are most important about life, the Bible's just utterly clear on. It's plain and it's clear. How do people go to heaven? Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. However, 
Sometimes there's issues that we deal with that, that are just, uh, that, that we need wisdom and discernment on knowing how we're supposed to go. This is especially true over issues that cause division due to people kind of drawing these hard lines over strange issues. Now, of course, wisdom and discernment is required on knowing what are the strange issues, but both in the church as well as in the world, there can be these strange teachings that pop up. And we need wisdom and discernment to know how to navigate it. For example, in the church, uh, strangeness can be an unhealthy focus on irrelevant debates. There can be an unhealthy focus on irrelevant debates. So this focus can, can lead to legalism and condemning one side over the other. And so these divisions can, can uh, uh, arise in the church. When I was a kid, I remember there was all this debate on what you were supposed to wear to church. And the pastor would preach in a suit. Well, man, I, I have no fashion sense, okay? So it's jeans, it's a collared shirt. When it's cold outside, I throw on a sport coat. I, I mean, I, I, have, I really give very little thought to this. You know, Mike is an elder in our church. Every week he's in cargo shorts. Sometimes it's flip-flops and socks. I think that's breaking rules. But he's not, let, he's not less spiritually mature with that look, okay? The, the, the point is, it's one of those irrelevant debates, really. So where would you want to wear it? It's not really a connection to your spiritual maturity, but we can have these types of divisions in the church. In church history, I've come across this kind of weird, what I think is kind of a weird division that happened in the church. In the British Civil War, the, the king was killed and, and this war breaks out. And what Christians started wondering is, is, listen, when you look at the book of Daniel, there's these four different kingdoms We've just ended our kingdom. That means we're actually ushering in the kingdom of God. And they were called the fifth monarchy men. Now all that, okay, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. But then when uh, Oliver Cromwell was made in charge of everything and he didn't want the title of king, he chose the title of Lord Protectorate. Now listen, I think that's better than a king, but I don't really like that title either. And this great debate broke out amongst people. Should we, should we fight against uh, Oliver Cromwell now? Should we reject this? And it took wisdom and discernment in that moment. There was one of the leaders of the, the Irish Baptists as they were debating this. And, and, and really, there was a moment coming where Oliver Cromwell and his men were about to come in and kill him. There was a pastor they respected in London named William Kiffin. And he wrote them a letter. And the gist of the letter was, chill out. <laughs> like, we have built this strong movement. God's working. Like, it's better to have Oliver Cromwell than a king. I don't really like the title either, but it's sure better than a king. But what is coming, the reality of what's coming, is you're about to be killed. This movement's about to, be, uh, about to end because you're embracing this strange teaching that maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I don't even know. Now, in their humility, uh, they heeded that rebuke and avoided the wrath of Cromwell's government. But the point is, all these strange teachings can prop up. The problem with strange legalistic teachings in the church is that it causes one side to condemn the other side. And as a result, it causes one side to think that the other side is not spiritual for believing what is actually an honest disagreement. Friends, and, and maybe you need to hear this, and maybe you're on both sides of this, but covenant theologians can believe that dispensationalists are heretics when in reality it's an honest difference of interpretation. Maybe you're on the covenant side, maybe you're on the dispensational side. They make good cases. I'm a coward and pick in between. I'm a progressive dispensationalist, okay? But listen, if those are, you can be faithful. You can be mature on both sides of that debate. It's not an irrelevant debate, but how we handle it matters. 
Listen, how we handle it can create either an ungracious or a harsh culture where people are measuring maturity exclusively by knowledge and less by piety. And that's where we need to remember that Jesus is enough. That's just in the church. But there's all these strange teachings, right, outside of the church, right? Like, like we're in this radical moment where there's this radical change and radical redefinition of even words and our society is changing. The radicals are ruling. The bullied have become the bullies. And we have this culture now where if you uh, understand and accept a particular idea in a certain way and if you say it in a certain way, then you're tempted to think that you're better than everybody else. And we have this culture that has come up, this cancel culture where people are condemned, this socially constructed ethic and moralities that are happening that is bringing this harshness and ugliness and lack of love in our society. I want you to hear that Jesus will never cancel you. As this thing has risen and there's been all these fights over these strange ideas, I go back to the fact that Jesus will never cancel you. The gospel is so much better than all of that. So instead of being led away by strangeness in the church and the world, be strengthened by grace. The, the counterbalance here is in verse 9, where he starts talking about priests and sacrifices and altars. He goes back to the gospel. These are themes that are all throughout Hebrews. And what he's saying here is we have something better. We have the grace of God. We have the gospel. And be strengthened by the grace of God. For example, uh, where should you put your child into school? I don't know. Listen, there are wonderful schools, all different types of schools in this community, and I praise God for all of them. And, and listen, that's not an irrelevant question. If you're a parent, that's a very serious question. You should pray over it. You should determine the way that you should go. And we're going to encourage you in it, whatever you think. And listen, what might be good for one kid might not, might not be good for one of your other kids or might be good for a season, but not another season. But here's the warning here. If your source of strength and joy is checking the right box there, then it's causing you to look down on other people. Friend, you're missing the point. Listen, make the right choice for you and your family, but the strength of your spiritual life is found in the gospel of grace. And listen, this is a church that does that really well. Like we have parents all over the spectrum of where they send their children, and I never hear cattiness or legalism about that. This is a church that does that well, and the reason you guys do this well is because your spiritual life is found in the gospel of grace. You're depending on God for rest. Are your, thoughts on the gospel, are, are, are your thoughts on the gospel to the degree that it's pumping life into your soul each day? Is the gospel that life for you? Listen, the ordinary faithful life, it's one that is not led away by strangeness, but it's strengthened by grace. Let me give you the third one. Let us now go to him. Verse 12 to 14 say, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify people through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Verses 10 and 11, they begin this conversation uh, about a sacrifice outside the gate. And in typical kind of Hebrews fashion, he then links it to Christ. And so this link that he now talks about here in 12 is that Jesus suffered outside the gate. Christians in the, the original audience of this, they were Christians who were outside the Jewish religious gates, if you will. They, they couldn't go where their brothers and sisters and cousins went anymore. 
They, they didn't believe in the temple sacrifice anymore because they had Jesus. Jesus was better. And so they didn't go certain places. They, they were left out of certain things. They were on the outside. But the good news is, is on the outside is where Jesus is. They were left out, but Jesus was left out as well. And he goes to this image of Jesus being crucified outside the gate of the city. Most likely, Jesus is crucified kind of on the road as as people were coming into Jerusalem so that the Romans could display their power, that if you act up, if you break the law, if you cause an insurrection inside the city, this is what's going to happen to you. And so you had people almost close enough where they could touch Christ, seeing Him and all His shame bloodied, naked, dying on the cross. It was a shameful moment. It was a shocking moment. He was outside the gate. He was experiencing this shame. He was experiencing all this pain. And people uh, were able to walk by and see it all. But he wasn't up there because he couldn't get out of it. He wasn't up there because the Romans were smarter or the Jewish leaders were more powerful than him. He was up there because he wanted to be up there. He chose to be up there, and he was up there because he did it out of love, out of love for you and me. That's why he was up there. And and he goes on to say that, listen, he was up there, verse 12, in order to sanctify his people. Listen, he was up there because he was trying to make you less sinful and more holy. He was up there because he wanted you to be saved. He wanted you to come to him to repent and believe what he was accomplishing for you on there. But that's not a one-and-done scenario for him. He was up there to sanctify you, to spiritually grow you, for you to keep coming back, for you to keep coming back to that experience. And listen, when you're on the outs, when you're on the outside because you're following him, you're to go to him. That's where he is as well. He's out there for you when you're on the outside. Just like these original readers who were facing some sort of uh, uh, being ostracized from their family and friends because they didn't participate in the Jewish religion anymore. They were on the outs, and his solution to that was go to Jesus because he's on the outs as well. We're to share in the disgrace outside the camp. The original readers, they had to break ties with the Old Testament Jewish faith of temple sacrifices, and today we need to break ties with, with religious attempts to earn righteousness with God. We need to break ties with the, what the world says of where we're going to find esteem and meaning. We need to go outside the camp because that's where Jesus is. And listen, it might bring shame and it might bring disgrace, but I promise you it will also bring joy. That's where joy is found outside the gate. Why? Why, why, do, why does he say we go to him? Look at that final verse in 14. The reason why we go to him is because uh, this world is no lasting city. Don't invest in this world. Don't get caught up in other people's opinions. Don't, don't get into this strange teaching where all this legalism is happening, making sure you're in the right camp as if you're going to find joy in that debate. Go to the outside, reject the legalistic opinions of others, either inside the church and outside the church, and go to him because this world, there is no lasting city. Jesus suffered shame outside the city gates, but let's go to him. Today, where he is, it leads to shame and sacrifice, but it leads to joy because this is no lasting city. In his presence is what is lasting. In his presence is what is joy. We're to joyfully savor him. The ordinary faithful life is about going to him. One more, number four, offer up praise and do good. Look at 15 and 16. 
Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Finally, this ordinary, faithful life, it's about continually offering up praise to him as well as continually doing good. So based upon uh, Jesus making that ultimate sacrifice outside the camp and abolishing the need for the temple sacrifices, we don't have to offer up animals anymore, but we are to offer up acts of worship. You see, there are still sacrifices that need to be made, not for sin, but sacrifices of praise to him. People periodically ask me, well, hey, how often should I come to church? And kind of my pat answers are as much as possible and more Sundays than not. That's the best I can do for you. And the reason is, is because God wants you in a church because he wants you to come together with God's people, sing songs, confessing your belief in the gospel, confessing your trust in him, coming together as God's people, praising him, because that's where joy is found. That's why you should be here. Listen, I'm tone deaf. Psalm 101, make a joyful noise. That's my verse, okay? Like maybe for you, it's a noise. Make it joyful, though. You're created for this to praise Him, to savor Jesus. That's why we're to come together, is to praise Him. And listen, I'll go so far as to say this, is that healthy, mature, growing Christians, they regularly come to church and praise God. And, other, and, and also, as a result, healthy, mature, growing Christians also experience the joy of savoring Jesus. You're to come here and, and, and put the worries aside for an hour. Set those things aside and lift your eyes up to him in praise. But, but there's a grammatical Greek link here between praise and doing good. So I've kind of lumped them together here. So out of savoring him, out of praising him, we're to do good. We're to do good works. These good works begin with sharing with others. Koinonia is the Greek term. So good works begin with generosity. The idea here is that God has been generous to you. He's given you something that you don't deserve. And as a result, you're to share with others, giving them what they don't deserve. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Who are the afflicted around you? I promise you they're there. I promise you there are those around you who are suffering that need your generosity, that need you to share with them. Maybe it's a, it's a word. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's wisdom. Maybe it's encouragement. Who's afflicted around you, and how do you need to do good to them? Friends, the extraordinary, ordinary Christian life, it's one in which people follow the example of leaders who've ministered the Word of God to them. It's one where you don't get caught up in strangeness, but, but the gospel becomes this thing that strengthens you, that pumps life into you. You're, you're to go to Him, especially when the world shames you and condemns you, and you're to continue to praise Him and to live a life marked by good works. Now listen, a, a life like that, it does not grab headlines, okay? It, it doesn't gain more followers or likes on social media. Maybe it doesn't make you popular at school. Maybe it doesn't help you rise in your company. It might make you boring in most people's eyes. But I think there's a beauty to that boring. I think there's a beauty to that ordinary faithfulness. Listen, it will make you a better friend. 
It'll make you a better husband. It'll make you a better wife. It'll make you uh, a better child. It'll make you uh, to your parents. It'll make you a better parent. It'll make you a more faithful employee and a, more, and a better boss and a better citizen. More importantly, that faithfulness will cause you to glorify God with your life. That faithfulness will lead to a life that has real eternal impact and meaning in this world. And that type of faithfulness, it'll lead to the experience of joy and joy everlasting. What he's talking about here is the good life, the happy life, the meaningful life, the faithful life. It's ordinary. It's meant to be accessed by ordinary people, not extraordinary people only. The world will look at it and think it's boring, but there's something really beautiful to it. Friends, I've I've wanted you just to understand with your mind what does the faithful life look like. And, And the reason for that is, is I don't want you to waste years and decades confused. I I don't want you just to to spend all that time chasing different things. I want you to understand what faithfulness is. However, I've wanted it to maybe be one more step further. I wanted you to just see this as beautiful. It's right. Hebrews 13 is right, but I also want you to see it as good. I want you to desire this life. I want you to see it as a blessing to you and a blessing to others. But if you're anything like me, you probably have looked at this list and these commands and wondered, man, this one doesn't mark my life. That one isn't true of me. Listen, if you're humbly honest today and you look at this list and you see gaps in your own life, I I just want to encourage you with something. I, I want to just encourage you to go where Paul went when he saw the weaknesses in his own life. In uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul is wrestling with his own weaknesses. And he, it says that he took those to Jesus and he prayed about those things. He wanted God to take those things away. And he said that Jesus responded with, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Listen, you've been saved by grace. But now there's this life of being sanctified by grace. That grace is still sufficient. If you haven't been faithful in one of these areas, listen, His grace is sufficient to help you today. It's still sufficient. It still convicts. It still forgives. It still empowers. And it still enables faithfulness. If you look at that list and all you see is failure, take it to Christ and He's going to tell you, my grace is sufficient for you. Hebrews 13 is this glorious vision of faithfulness. But where, you've, but where you've been unfaithful, where you've been weak, where you've been imperfect, go to Him again. Receive that grace again. It is still sufficient. In other words, friends, it's never too late. You're never too far gone. His grace is still sufficient. I, I read a little article this week about a guy named Chris, and, and he loved Nashville. I, I thought that was odd, and it kind of caught my eye. But Chris had grown up in the church, he had, uh, and, and his kind of passion as a kid was music. He devoted himself to music, and, and, and the older he got, that's what he wanted to be. He wanted to be a professional musician. And so after graduating high school, he, just, he, he uh, had the opportunity to go to Nashville, and he got to play with uh, all these different stars. He could name drop some people that he'd uh, played with, and he was making it. He was making it as a working musician, and, and that was kind of kind of his link to this love of Nashville. He loved the music, he loved the halls, he loved the, the bars, he loved the shows, he loved the events. He loved the real cosmopolitan feel of Nashville and all the buzz of the city, he loved the innovation of the city. He even loved kind of the history of the city. 
And, and as Nashville was growing, he got really into just loving all the new buildings that were being built. Again, he just fell in love with the Nashville scene. When Chris was in his early 50s, his father died. And, and the death really rattled him as it does. And it, it caused him to really reevaluate some things. And when he kind of had a quiet moment with his, with his mother, his mother shared a couple of really sweet things to him. She, she first shared that she wanted him to know how proud his father had been of him and just all that he had accomplished in the music scene. And, and that was really important to him. And she shared with Chris that, man, he, your dad just talked about that all the time with his friends, uh, of all the different things that you were doing. He was really proud of you. And then she said, I also want you to know that your dad prayed every day that you would return to church. See, when he went off to Nashville, he never plugged into a church. He never got involved. If you ask him, he would claim to be a Christian, especially when it was uh, to his advantage. But, but he kind of kept it quiet. He was a nice guy, but he wasn't a faithful guy, at least according to these Hebrews 13 uh, definitions and markers. But Chris's mother could tell that as she said that, he was just kind of mulling and pondering over that comment. And at that moment, she kind of gently just patted his hand. She looked into Chris's eyes, and she said, it's never too late. That moment totally changed his life. When he went back to Nashville, he reached out to some of his strong Christian friends and said, hey, where do you go to church? I, I just want to go with you. He started going to church again. He started reading his Bible again. He started praying again. He, he said that his first prayer kind of began with, hey, God, it's been a while. He had these numb feelings towards God. Have you been there where you have those prayers? They just seem like they're hitting the roof. It just seemed, you're wondering, man, is this even real? He, he had those feelings. And when he brought that to some friends, they said something that really changed his life. They said, hey, they really challenged him to not let his feelings shape his theology, but let his theology shape his feelings. I thought it was pretty good. He really embraced that and it just pushed into faithfulness even when he wasn't feeling it. And then the feelings followed. And, and in the article, you kind of fast forward five years, and, and then Chris is, is then faithfully walking with the Lord. It isn't glamorous like the other things that were going on in Nashville. Probably to many people's eyes, it was really boring, but he confessed that it was soul-satisfying. There was this professional guitar player, and he was playing in the, in the children's band for the children's ministry at church. But he got plugged into a small group. He was meeting weekly with some men at church for Bible study. And listen, he is, he's been known to kind of quietly help people when tangible needs pop up. But at the end of the day, what's most important is Chris is, is going to Jesus every day. He's savoring Christ. He's finding his joy in him. When he's alienated because of his faithfulness, he finds strength in the gospel. He's not sidetracked by silliness, but he has a, a singular focus on Christ. Friends, that's what faithfulness looks like. Is faithfulness good to you today? Does this list mark your life? Is faithfulness boring to you? Or is faithfulness beautiful to you today? Can, can those around you say, listen, that guy's faithful, that lady is faithful, and I'm blessed from it? Listen, what on this list challenges you today? Chris had ignored Jesus for decades, but, but he learned that it was never too late. Friends, it's never too late. No matter where you are today, if you look at that list and it doesn't mark anything in your life, it's never too late. It's never too late to turn and just experience that sufficient grace of Christ again. Faithfulness is this ordinary thing that it really is extraordinary. No one's going to write a book about you. No one's going to make a movie about you. But those things are not what is important. This faithful life, that's where you find joy. It was boring to some, but in reality it was beautiful. His ordinary faithfulness. Is that extraordinary to you today? 
And if it's not, ask him to change your heart. Father God, thank you for this passage. For this moment that you do many times in your word, you just provide direct, plain, clear teaching on the way that we are to live. Help all of us, all of us, these ordinary Christians, live out this ordinary, extraordinary, faithful life. Help us where others think it's boring. Help us to see it as beautiful. Help us to go to you and find strength in the gospel. May the gospel be this thing that just pumps life into us each and every morning. Help us to be a people that find joy savoring you. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. 